Hebrews chapters, chapters 5 through 7, it would be pride goeth before the fall. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, we have another remarkable example of how God controls the hearts of kings. Read along with me. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's room, rooms, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And it happened when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to Esther, What is troubling you, King Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, and it will be given to you. And Esther said, If it please the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. And then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther answered and said, My petition and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I shall prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. If you recall our previous study, Esther had one of those incredible moments. It may, may come along once or twice in a lifetime where she has to make this critical decision. All of us make decisions on a moment-by-moment basis, and these decisions have a cumulative effect on the outcome of our lives. But Esther came to one of these crossroads like we do from time to time. And that crossroad, that crossroad comes up when Mordecai challenges her to go to the king and intervene on behalf of the Jewish people. And in chapter 4, after after in verse 11, Esther's trying to figure out every reason why somebody else should be sent. Every reason why she shouldn't be the one to go. In Esther 4, chapter 13, Mordecai responds to Esther and tells her, Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have attained royalty for such a time as this. Perhaps the key verse in all of the book of Esther. This is Mordecai's challenge to Esther. How do you not know that God didn't put you in that position for this very time? He didn't put you in that position so that you could enrich yourself. He didn't put you in that position so that you could live comfortably and not care about anything outside of yourself. That's not why God prospered you in that way. Francis Schaeffer, back in the late 70s, early 80s, he died, I believe, in 1982 or 1984, so it's certainly before that. Francis Schaeffer said the values of the West are what are going to bring it down. And the, the two values of the West that he thought were going to bring the West down were the values of personal peace and affluence. Personal peace and affluence. Personal peace, by that, he didn't mean that we want to have tranquility in our lives. What he meant by personal peace was, as long as I am secure and as long as I am comfortable, I don't care what happens to my neighbor. And in a large way, 
Draper's words turn out to be fairly prophetic. That does seem to be one of the primary values, if you could use that in the in negative sense, of the both Western Europe and the United States. We've fallen down that pathway. I don't care what happens to you, just so long as I'm okay. That was Esther's attitude here as well. Esther saying, I really don't care what happens to the Jewish people as long as I'm secure here in the palace. She wasn't willing to risk it as long as her security was okay. So Mordecai hits right at the heart of the problem and he says, listen, how do you know you're secure? You're a Jew as well. So if you don't do this, your personal security, the security that you want so badly, your personal peace is going to go out the window too. It's a great challenge for Esther. And then verse 15, Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me and do not eat or drink for three days or nights. And all my ladies also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. That was the promise. Which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded. We saw that at the conclusion of last week's lesson. Now we see three days have passed. Fasting has taken place. It doesn't say anything about prayer. Anyone who studies Esther wished that it did. As I said last week, at this point in their life, we cannot assume that either Esther or Mordecai is spiritually mature people. I wish we could say that, but we cannot. There's no mission here of Esther saying, I'm going to go do this, and the battle is the Lord. I wish we could see that today. We see patriotism from Esther and patriotism from Mordecai. We also see that maybe Mordecai understands the providence of God, but he never states it. And if we don't realize this particular point, we're going to miss one of the beauties of the book of Esther. We have to realize that Esther doesn't deliver her people by being a spiritual giant. Esther's obedient, but Esther really didn't have much chance. She's going to die either way. The point, the overlay, the overlay is that God is going to providentially take care of these people in spite of the fact that Esther's not a spiritual giant. In spite of the fact that Mordecai is not a spiritual giant. In one of our earlier lessons, we said that the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah, as well as Deuteronomy, said that they were supposed to get back into the land if they went back there. And neither Mordecai or Esther is doing that. And we don't know why it may have not been their fault at all. But serious Old Testament commentators, ones that are serious about it, not the ones that write popular commentators, but the ones that are serious, will point out at this point in time, they're not spiritual gods. Maybe they will become that later. The point is, God is going to take care of them in spite of that. So Esther does what she does. Now, she's brilliant in how she does it. This, this woman has a scheme, if you'll allow me to use that word, in a positive sense. She's got a scheme that just won't quit. And so she's intelligent and she's patriotic. And she's strong in that sense. But her maturity will come later on, I believe, in her life. So we have another example in chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, of how God controls the heart of the king. After three days of fasting, in which Esther participated, she was ready to go to the king with her request. When the king comes back, of course, the, the biggest point of tension is what's going to happen. Because as you remember, again, from a previous study, if she goes to the king and he doesn't receive her, and he hasn't received her for 30 days, 
But if she goes to Peter, he goes to the sea, we're going to, uh, it's not going to work out well. She has courage. And she goes to the king, and he receives her. I love what verse 2 says, at least in English. And it happened in the king's sight. It didn't just happen. That's the providence of God. The providence of God is all over this narrative. The providence of God caused the king to show Esther favor. To have the kingdom, that seems like quite a lot to give someone, that is obviously hyperbolic. And it means something like, I will grant even a large request to you. We see this in the New Testament. You might remember this phrase coming up in the New Testament. Exactly right. In Mark chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, the text reads this way. A strategic day came, and Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. Kings don't typically just voluntarily give away half of their stuff. This is a, this is a figure of speech. It's idiomatic for, I'll give you anything you want. You tell me what it is you want, and I'll give it to you. Anybody that had any sense wouldn't ask for half the kingdom either. You probably wouldn't come out of there very well. As a quick aside, Herod was just a lousy, lousy king, too. But what about Herodias? And this story. I wouldn't want to be them standing before God's judgment, knowing that's what you asked for in such a trivial way. Of course, Herodias wasn't asking in a trivial way. There's a whole story why she did that. But anyway, that's a, that's a New Testament example. Throughout this narrative, Esther shows her smarts. She's thought through this. She used the three days in fasting to think through this, and she's come up with a plan. She's going to make sure all the pieces are in place before she drops the hammer on Haman. This is a smart woman. The point is, though, that Esther has this plan, but it's God that's going to make the plan work. Esther couldn't have planned it out that the king was going to receive her. She didn't know. That's why she's nervous back in verse 11 of chapter 4. She doesn't know, but she's got this incredible plan. But God is the one that's going to make the plan work. It's okay for Christians to have plans. Did you know that? It's okay. A number of years ago, I was in a, on a radio program with my brother at a Christian radio station, not KQB, but a different Christian radio station here in town. And we were, it was a live program. It was a question-answer program. Because it was a live program, we were sitting in this room preparing while another program was going on. And the other program was a lady Bible teacher who, was, who used her, the entirety of her program to absolutely destroy the idea that Christians should set goals. I was listening to that very carefully because as a young boy, one of the things my dad taught me was to set goals. I remember we went out to the front yard and he would measure off when I was playing football as a little tyke, I forgot what they call it, peewee football. He would set up a, a cone at one driveway and then two driveways later he set up another cone and he had his Timex out there and he would time me. And he said, okay, we're going to set a goal, then next week we're going to be running this faster. So I grew up setting goals. A goal is just a roadmap as to where you'd like it to be. I would agree that it would be wrong for a Christian to set a goal apart from that little phrase, in accordance with thy will, O Lord. 
it's actually crazy not to have some sort of goal. If you don't have any direction in your life, and how are you going to get there? <laughs> and, you, and how are you going to know when you got there? I have, I have several goals in my life that are spiritually oriented. I'm not going to tell you what they are, but I'm sure you have the same one. Setting a goal itself is not a bad thing. Esther having a plan is not a bad thing. She just needed to make sure she turned over the execution of that plan to God. And if that's not God's plan, we have to be willing to say, okay, I might have a goal to go to Harvard. But God doesn't want me at Harvard. He shut that door. Well, maybe he wants me to go to the University of Houston instead. So there's nothing wrong with having the plan. In fact, a life without a plan is it's going to be a life of needless wandering. All of us need to have a plan. You had a plan. To, you had a goal to get here tonight. And there were certain steps that you had to take to accomplish that goal. You had to make sure there was enough gas in the car and that you had enough blood sugar in your bloodstream in order to make sure you stayed awake tonight. And so you had to take steps to either go to a restaurant or, or cook something before you came. So you had this objective that you wanted to, to get to church, Lord willing. And in order to get to church, Lord willing, there had to be several steps you had to go through. So it's not a radical concept. So that particular show, my brother and I trashed everything that we were going to say, and we spent the whole time talking about how it's legitimate for Christians to have goals. Shortly thereafter, they canceled the radio program. <laughs> I don't think they liked one person contradicting the other one, but I thought we had done a, a really dang-up job. They didn't, they didn't feel that way, though. The point is, in the first eight verses, we see the Esther's plan, but we also see an overlay of the providence of God. Remember I told you, don't forget the bigger overlay of these three chapters is going to be the idea that pride goeth before the fall. Esther is going to have a plan that is so brilliant, she's going to use, more, uh, she's going to use Haman's weakness against him. She's going to use Haman's pride against him. Let's look at Haman's reaction in verses 9 through 14. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house, and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, and the number of his sons, and in every instance where the king had magnified him, and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Verse 13, Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. King Zeresh, his wife, and all the friends said to him, Have a gallows of fifty cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Good, good gal, that, that wife. <laughs> Sweet lady. What a, what a bunch of friends he had. That this is the suggestion how to get rid of it. Just build a 75-foot gallows and just hang that guy on it and be done with it. Sweet lady. At this point in time, there's no indication that Haman knows that Esther is related to Mordecai. Not yet. Otherwise, he wouldn't have walked into this, may I call it a trap. That's what it is. Under normal conditions, we would think that someone that is as well-connected as Haman, he's the second person in command in Persia, it looks like, right now. We would think that someone as well-connected as Haman would have known this. After all, Haman probably would have said on his way to the gallows himself, this would have been a handy bit of information to have, knowing that this queen that I'm about to go have dinner with is the cousin, or actually uncle cousin, of the man that I want to have killed. It would have been a handy bit of information to have. It's apparent to me that God is providentially, here's that word again, he's providentially kept Haman 
from discovering Esther's relationship to Mordecai. This invitation is such an honor for Haman. He is just on cloud nine. His head is too big for his hat by this time. And again, this is a stroke of genius on Esther's part. She knows Haman's dislike. And she's going to use Haman's own prideful momentum against him. In certain forms of martial arts, one of the things that people do, not all forms, but in certain forms, one of the ways that you defeat an opponent is you allow them to come at you and you use their momentum and then you just divert it to a different direction, in the direction you want to. So their, their momentum, instead of hitting you, ends up being their own downfall. Esther is going to use Haman's pride against him. It's like Haman's pride is coming barreling down the street, and Esther just takes that and shifts it, and, and Haman's going to end up finding himself right on the pavement, and he's not even know what happened to him, but it was his own pride that put him there. This is absolutely brilliant. So Haman is ecstatic about this good fortune with the king, but he can't enjoy it because at the same time he is enraged that this fellow Mordecai still won't bow down to him. He's going to have him killed, but at this point, Mordecai is even more bold than he was before. In order to assuage his anger and his rage and his angst, he gathers his family and his friends together and he spends the time bragging, here's the pride, bragging about the wealth that he had accumulated and the family that he had raised. He had 10 sons. We don't know that yet. We'll find it out later. He's got 10 sons. Now, that's wealth in and of itself in the ancient culture. 10 sons, that makes you extremely wealthy. It means you have 10 good employers as well. As, as with most of the people of the ancient Near East, the Persians placed a great value on the number of sons one had. A mature person which Haman was not, but a mature person would have overlooked the slight, recognizing you'll have a better outcome long-term if you just let it pass. It's like that fellow that cuts you off on the freeway and gives you half of a peace signal, a peace sign, as, as they're coming by. Now, you could, since some of you carry a concealed handgun license, you could pull that gun out and, and start, start shooting at the car in front of you. But it would probably not end up having the ultimate result that you want to have. It would have been you'd have been better off in the long run, letting it go. I know for most of our personalities we don't want to do that, and Haman didn't want to do it. But it's not the mark of maturity; it's actually a mark of immaturity. So if you do silly stuff like that, you know your wife has every right to fuss at you. I know some of you apparently never have done anything like that, and I never have either. But if I would have, I'm sure my wife would have fussed at me and said, what are you doing? Let it go. Let it go, Haman. But he just couldn't do it. He's so mad at Mordecai, the Jew. It's five times in this letter or this book that he's called Mordecai, the Jew. He's still upset with this man in a big way. Haman's so agitated with Mordecai in his actions that he couldn't enjoy himself in this moment in the sun that he was having. So on this occasion, his family and his friends step in, dear sweet people that they are, and they suggest that maybe what you ought to do is just kill the guy. Just kill him before the banquet, and that way you can have it out of the way and you can enjoy the banquet. Wives are supposed to be helpers. 
they're not they're not supposed to say yeah get your gun out and shoot that guy for cutting you off they're supposed to say don't do that would you just look straight ahead and let him go well this wife of Haman wasn't that way she put gasoline on the fire his wife Zeresh and all of his friends were no better than Haman was they're all a bunch of low lives the gallows that they speak about was probably not the kind of gallows that you see in the old Western movies where they build them up a couple, two or three stories high and everybody gathers around and they watch the hanging. The way that this term is actually used in Hebrew Bible, though, it may not have been the same kind of gallows that we're talking about. It was probably a stake because rather than hang them from the neck until dead, the common practice when they used this terminology was to impale the person. 50 cubits is approximately 75 feet high. 75 feet is pretty tall. You wouldn't want to be on the edge of a 75-foot cliff and spend too much time looking over the side because it's approximately about a six-story building. So they, they were going to build a very high gallows, the point being they wanted everybody in town to see what happens to anybody that messes with Haman or maybe even his friends. Because remember, this is his wife really suggesting this and his friends. You mess with Haman or his friends, and you're going to end up on a 75-foot stake impaled. This is pride. Isn't it pride to want to kill somebody because they disrespected you? That's not justice. That's pride. That's arrogance. That's arrogance to the max. Somebody's insulted you, so you take a shotgun and shoot them. That's criminal. This is going to be irony in a huge way. This is going to be ironic, at it, irony at its best. This is going to be the biggest unexpected reversal of circumstances in decades in Persia. Because if you've read ahead, you also know this very same gallows is not going to be used for Mordecai. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, while all this is happening over at Haman's house, the king decides he's going to go to bed. The king can't sleep. That happens to people from time to time. But apparently this was unusual enough that the text mentions it. Again, this didn't just happen to happen. This is the providence of God that causes the king not to be able to sleep. So since the king can't sleep, he says, hey, listen, bring me these old records, and I'd just like to read through the records of the kingdom. Probably like reading through the tax code or something. And it figured it was going to put him to sleep. I've done that from time to time, too. I'll be laying there in the middle of the night. You know how your mind races through different things, and it keeps looping and looping. You think of the same things over and over again, and I threaten myself, okay, listen, if I'm not asleep by 2.30, I'm getting up, and I'm reading, and I pick the most boring book that I have on my shelf. I'm going to read that book if I'm not asleep by 2.30. Well, it looks like that. Maybe, maybe the king Xerxes is doing something like this, but providentially, he just happens to come across the passage that relates what Mordecai had done for him previously. Verse 2, it was found, written that what Mordecai had reported concerning these two traitors, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes. So the king says, what's been done for this man? In Persian culture, Herodotus, the Greek historian, reports twice that it was common for a Persian king to reward somebody immediately when they had helped him out. And remember, Mordecai wasn't even given a thank you note 
for saving the king's life. He just kind of got lost in the shuffle. Maybe the king knew about it, but he didn't know that nothing had been done for Mordecai. So he asks in verse 3, the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Again, we know from extra-biblical sources, historical sources, that it was common for a king to reward somebody. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for this man. The insomnia is another point of the providence of God. So the king is going to move very quickly to correct this oversight, something that he's reading at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, apparently, because he couldn't go to sleep. He finds out about Mordecai. You see what I mean by it was Esther's plan, but God's going to work out all the details so that it works in Esther's favor. This was probably a detail that Esther couldn't have planned on her best day. None of us would have thought this. But God thought through it in a great way. This is one of those ones where I'm talking about where God working through Esther is going to use Haman's own pride. He's going to use his own negative momentum against him. In verse 4 of chapter 6, so the king said, who's in the court? Well, it's morning time now. Haman, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows, which he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? This is comedic. They could make a 21st century movie about something like this, and we'd all laugh. Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Pride, pride, pride. Who could it be but me that the king wants to honor? Pride goeth before the fall. Or we could say, pride goeth before being impaled on a 75-foot stake. Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let him bring a royal robe that the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. Now that's the, the horse, not the king. They would weave this garland to put on the horse's head that the king rode. Let the robe of the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. You, you see the picture? Dress him up, put him on the finest horse, and one of the noblemen, if it would be in our country, the, the president may say to the vice president, you take this person around and you yell throughout all of Washington, D.C., this is what's done for someone who shows the president of the United States a, a good time. This is what's done if someone shows the President of the United States a favor. This is so ironic. Haman is prescribing something he thinks is for himself, but it's, he's actually prescribing something for his worst enemy. This is a quick turn of events in verses 11 through 14, or 10 through 14. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes of the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate, and do not fall short of anything of all that you have said. You talk about being mad before. This guy must not have known what to say next. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman was hurried home, mourning, with his head covered. 
the, the head covering is a part of showing grief in the ancient culture. When he gets home, he has another meeting with his wife and his friends to try to, again, calm his troubled soul. That's what we do sometimes, don't we? we you know, these things happen. We want to gather people around. They're going to listen to our story. We don't really want their advice most of the time. We act like we want their advice, but we just want them to listen to us rant about the bad day that we've had. And Haman recounted to Jairus, his wife, and all his friends, everything that happened to him. Then his wise men and Jairus, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before you, before whom you begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. If I was Haman, I would, think, I would say that, that would have been a handy bit of information to have earlier, yesterday. Now you're telling me this? Thanks a lot. That's great advice. In, in other words, oh, wow, you messed with him. It looks like, it looks like he's somebody that you shouldn't, you shouldn't have messed with. <laughs> Thanks a lot. While they were still talking with him, the king's units arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. This may look on the surface like now Haman is reluctant to go to this banquet. That's not it at all. He wants to go to the banquet because he feels like, well, I just got humiliated here, but at least I've got this great banquet to go to where I'm the only other invited guest besides the king, and maybe my pride, maybe my ego will be refurbished. The king's units arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet, so they, they probably had some sort of police escort. Let's get everybody out of the way. It's time to get to the banquet. This is an important guest. Well, chapter 7, we see, again, pride goes before the fall. First, Esther's plea. Now, the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther, the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day, as they also drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? She's throwing a heck of a banquet for him. And she waits to the exact right time. Queen Esther is a master at timing. What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be done. Again, this hyperbole. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me as my request and my people as my request. They've been partying for a while. The king has consumed some wine by this time. He's chilled out at the very least. So now is when. She chooses the moment to strike. If I found favor, spare my life. Verse 4, for we have been sold, and I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commiserate with the annoyance to the king. She's smart. Listen, sir. If all you were going to do was to put our people into slavery, I wouldn't have bothered you with something so trivial. But since the plan is to kill all of us, I thought perhaps you would want to know about it. Then King Ahasuerus, Xerxes, asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would presume to do thus? Timing. And Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and trembled. <laughs> Timing. Well, the king doesn't really know what to do because Haman is his second in charge. So he leaves momentarily. He's got to go think about it. So he leaves Esther's quarters, goes out 
into this garden, and he's going to think about, well, what am I going to do? I'm kind of caught in the horns of a dilemma as well. This is my chief advisor. The queen is telling me, and she's proven to me now, that the advice that he gave me wasn't very good. And if you're an advisor to the king in ancient and ancient cultures, and you didn't give the king good advice, they're wanting to you as well. So the king is, he, he don't want to do this to her. He's, he's embarrassed that he's already talked to his advice earlier, which results in genocide for Ahab. So he goes out in the meantime, as, as he goes out, Haman is beside himself, and he is all over Esther. Not in a violent way, in a way of humility. Now he gets humility. So he's all over Esther, begging her to intervene on his behalf. Stop him. Do whatever you can to stop him. And the king arose in his anger, verse 7, and did be wise. And went into the palace yard, for Haman stayed to beg for his life to Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. He knows what this means. And when the king returned from the palace yard into the place where they were drinking wine, and the second time that is a very sad part, the timing is important. Esther does have a very good description before the incident. The king returned from the palace yard, and by the way, this is not this is a description of our food system that's probably has folks eating for about sixteen years. Is that right? You can pick out our valley right now. King returned from the palace yard into the place where they were drinking wine. Haman was falling on the back where Esther was. Bad news, Haman. Bad news. In that culture, if you got within three feet of either the queen or one of the king's concubines, you may have well have had your life destroyed. You'd be here on your way out. You would be executed for that. He's a lot closer than three feet. He's on the back with her. And what looks like Compromising position in the king's own sight. Then the king said, Will he eat of thorns and things that move from the house? This is a madman. What is he thinking? His, his whole pitch is that the king thinks that Esther's mad. He thinks that Haman is. Thank you. 